The Soviets were haunted by the ghost of Barbarossa. Operation Barbarossa was the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Axis powers in 1941. And not just 1941, but Sunday, the 22nd of June, 1941, at 3.15 a.m. Millions of Axis troops went into action, crossing the Soviet border and commencing the most devastating invasion the country had ever endured. It began the single worst military disaster in all of Russian history. And it was a surprise. It was a surprise, though it really probably shouldn't have been. Hitler was very straightforward about his plans to invade and settle Soviet territory in his book Mein Kampf, and that was published in 1925 and 1926. By August 1940, British intelligence was warning the Soviets of a German plan to attack. At the start of 1941, US intelligence was reporting the same thing to Stalin, along with his own intelligence service. The Soviet spy, Ricard Zorge, even offered the exact date of the attack. In the months before the invasion, Germany moved 3 million troops and an additional 690,000 assorted Axis soldiers to the Soviet border. This created some anxiety, but it was less than two years after the Soviet-German non-aggression pact, and so Stalin found the likelihood of invasion fairly remote, and he didn't want to provoke Hitler. But despite the indicators, both covert and overt, the Axis invaded on the morning of the 22nd of June and began the most calamitous military experience ever endured by Russia or the Soviet Union. The story of Barbarossa occupies volumes upon volumes. The experience of that front is a historian's specialty in itself. But from that long conflict, the Great Patriotic War, came a permanent neurotic condition that beset the Soviet state forever after. It was the ghost of Barbarossa. No matter the cost, the Soviet state would not be caught unprepared and unaware again. In this series, we have seen the ratcheting up of tensions due to miscalculations and misinterpretations in both the East and the West, the creation of the Soviet intelligence gathering machine designed only to provide proof that a surprise nuclear attack was on its way, and finally, the often referenced pinnacle of the war scare, the 1983 Operation Archer Nuclear Release Command Post exercise. But though many tales of the war scare years end neatly and conveniently with the end of Abel Archer, and the success in averting a nuclear preemption. All of those anxieties, those perceptions, those fears and misconceptions, all of those pieces were still in place after the native forces swept up and boarded their transports and headed home by the 15th of November, 1983. 
Though some might like to end the story with crisis averted, the Soviet side of the war scare story was anything but finished. As new documents come to light, it becomes clear that all of those breathless references to Abel Archer also seem to pack up and move on and ignore what happened next. The Pershing twos were still deployed. Reagan and Thatcher were very much still in power. NATO's ability to meet a Soviet threat or succeed against a Soviet defense had been made clear throughout the 1983 autumn exercises and the Operation Ryan intelligence gathering machine continued to pour information into the Moscow center, fueling suspicion and anxiety. That calm at the end of Autumn Forge 83 might just have been the ruse that the Soviets were not going to fall for again. The ghost of Operation Barbarossa whispered, trust no one. And so it might just have been that the most dangerous year of the war scare was after everyone had packed up and gone home. It wasn't 1983 after all. The ghost of Barbarossa kept the war scare burning on the Soviet side well into 1984, this time on the Cold War Vault. In the last episode, I referenced a, quote, rather stunning array of indicators that seemed to be completely ignored by the U.S. intelligence community. What seemed stunning, certainly, and even frightening in 1983 didn't stop after Abel Archer. These indicators were increased, were augmented, and diversified. In whatever ways such rumors traveled in the Soviet Union, gossip about the impending war seemed everywhere by December, most of it fueled by officials of the Soviet Union itself. For three days in early December 1983, in Sofia, Bulgaria, the defense ministers of the Warsaw Pact discussed various responses to the NATO deployment of new nuclear weapons, namely the Pershing II's but also the BGM-109G Griffins. We haven't talked about that weapon system, but the Griffins were a major worry for the Soviet Union as well, but for a different reason. They were ground-launched cruise missiles that could depart the Greenham Common Air Base in England and strike Moscow two and a half hours later. They lacked the quick strike time of the Pershing twos that put Soviet retaliatory response into question, but they could hug the ground, making them all but impossible to intercept. The commander-in-chief of the Warsaw Pact, Viktor Kulikov, gave a speech on the 5th of December to the ministers, describing the entire international situation at the time as pre-war, and calling for more active training of the reserves and the aggressive stockpiling of ammunition, food, and fuel. 
At the same time, a still unnamed U.S. official in Moscow conducted unofficial conversations with his intelligence contacts and reported back his sense that there was a pervasive and obsessive fear of impending war. Yes, this had been the case before Abel Archer and the wider Autumn Forge exercises in 1983. But nothing about the end of the exercises and the return of U.S. and NATO troops to their home bases seemed to quell the worry. In these same weeks, General Secretary of the Soviet Union Yuri Andropov sent a letter to Margaret Thatcher that expressly described the Griffin cruise missiles being installed at RAF Greenham Common as a threat to the Soviet Union. Which, of course, they were. I mean, they weren't there to attack Iceland. Another unnamed asset reported on the content of the letter describing it as resentful to the point of anger and even threatening. But the plans for the intermediate-range nuclear force went ahead, and along with the cruise missiles, the Pershing II's were installed in West Germany in December. With his threats to Thatcher ignored, and his inability to reason with a first-term Reagan now apparent, Andropov ordered the Soviet negotiators in Geneva to leave the ongoing arms control talks and not return until the Pershings had been removed. It was, perhaps unfortunately, the last act he would perform in the realm of international nuclear policy. He had long been ailing, as so many of the Soviet leadership were, and Yuri Andropov died on the 9th of February, 1984. Andropov was succeeded by Konstantin Janenko, but that seemed to have absolutely no effect on the general sense of dread that had befallen the Politburo. The tone from the leadership continued to be one of preparation for war. When Kulikov emerged again in the Western press, it was through an article in Red Star, the official newspaper of the Soviet Ministry of Defense. It said, basically, that the United States and NATO were playing with fire, and no matter what schemes they devised for a preemptive attack on the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, they would be met with, as he put it, a fitting response. Two days later, the unrelentingly hardline Marshal Dmitry Ustinov spoke of what he was doing as the Minister of Defense to build up the Soviet military capability as a response to the United States. All of it in the service, in his words, of cooling the hot heads of the bellicose adventurists. The imperialist West, of course. Within two weeks, Chernenko circulated a diplomatic cable to the Soviet embassies that continued the themes of impending doom that had defined Andropov's last days. The telegram read, The present tension in the world is caused by the sharply stepped-up policies of the more aggressive forces of American imperialism, a policy of outright militarism, of claims to world supremacy, and then, for good measure, struck the now familiar chord. The U.S. deployment of nuclear missiles in Europe has seriously increased the threat of war. 
If you only listen to the popular narrative of the war scare, you might be tempted to follow an arguably sensible path of reason and analysis regarding Operation Ryan. It had been designed to collect evidence of an impending U.S. attack on the Soviet Union, a surprise attack, a preemptive attack. And when the point of greatest tension in the war scare had passed, the able archer component of Autumn Forge, it would have proven to be somewhat ineffective, having created more anxiety than actionable intelligence. Because, of course, the exercises had not been a cover for war. But the end of the autumn exercises had no such effect, and Ryan continued unabated. In fact, collection efforts were stepped up. The program continued to produce information at a stunning rate after the autumn exercises. In January, Marshal Vladimir Kriyachkov, the chairman of the KGB, gave a speech to KGB officers in which he said exactly this. The White House is advancing on its propaganda, the adventurous and extremely dangerous notion of survival in the fire of a thermonuclear catastrophe. This is nothing else but psychological preparation of the population for nuclear war. These words were not formulated for the sake of external consumption. His statements represented his genuine anxiety. And the fire of thermonuclear catastrophe certainly sounds very anxious to me. But if that wasn't enough, Kriyashkov ratcheted up the Ryan information collection efforts, putting his own fears in the hearts and minds of the KGB officers in charge of the task. He said, quote, Everything indicates that the threshold for using nuclear weapons is being lowered, and the significance of the surprise factor has sharply increased. The fear and suspicion spread, and by April, U.S. intelligence assets within the KGB were reporting that the feeling among officials was that the superpowers were on the brink of war. To cope with this near certainty, orders to the Ryan operation became ever more specific, and to those on the outside, even bizarre. Surveillance of certain civilian groups was ordered, along with intense observation of banks, post offices, and slaughterhouses. Here, the danger of Ryan became more pronounced, its self-reinforcing nature, its vicious cycle, fed unsourced, disjointed information to the Soviet leadership, who incorporated all of it into ever more aggressive data collection demands. As I described the operation in a previous episode, The Hammer and the Nail, it was a program designed to identify preparations for preemptive war, and so it saw in every scrap of information potential evidence of those preparations. The program had no other way to see anything. It was not there to prove a negative. A very open and public news report on military activities at Greenham Common was reported back to the center as essential news of strategic importance. 
A similar flash message was sent to Moscow by a junior KGB officer based on news he'd heard on the BBC. Hardly top-notch spycraft. But it was customary that these reports didn't carry attributions. So back in Moscow, all reports were treated equally, much to the detriment of anything like an accurate, even-handed portrayal of reality. All of this supported extensive and realistic military exercises in March and April of 1984. In fact, during those months, Soviet armed forces conducted the most comprehensive rehearsals for nuclear war ever detected by Western observers. The intelligence assessment declared that on their own, several of the component exercises were the largest of their type ever conducted. In one naval exercise, 148 surface ships and an unknown number of submarines, though likely close to 50, with 23 ballistic missile subs, activated as they would in a nuclear attack, conducting defensive maneuvers, anti-submarine operations, and eventually, offensive nuclear strikes. On the heels of the naval exercises, the Strategic Air Force and Rocket Force maneuvers began with 80 bombers conducting large-scale simulated nuclear strikes and the actual launch, not simulated, of 33 submarine-launched, medium-range, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. It should be noted that while the missiles were flying that spring, Soviet civil defense volunteers were going door-to-door -door explaining what to do if, or when, the air raid sirens sounded. While March and April demonstrated just how much anxiety was driving the Ryan collection and military readiness efforts, May brought an even more serious, even dire approach to the brink. Marshal Dmitry Ustinov heated up the Cold War rhetoric, announcing that any attempts at resolving the historical dispute by means of military force are doomed to failure and he reiterated Chernenko's promise that no military adventures of imperialism will take us by surprise. Any aggressor will immediately get his desserts. Finally, Ustinov let the world know that the Soviet army and navy were in a state of permanent readiness for resolutely repelling any aggressor. To support that readiness, the military was removed from duties surrounding the year's harvest. A major ammunition plant in Lubin, East Germany, began 24-hour production to more than double its output. Reservists in Hungary were called up at the same time that in Poland, several cities called up reservists, both men and women, for an urgent exercise. To underscore the sense of urgency, it was reported that even in families with young children, both the husband and wife were called up. Poland extended its required service for new reservist officers from 12 to 18 months. Just in case you think all of this sounds pretty dangerous, I should say that it was all in advance of when things got really frightening in June. 
Soviet special forces had been arriving in waves in Hungary for months. But in June, this influx was stepped up in both Hungary and Czechoslovakia, along with what the 1990 report calls far more aggressive indoctrination of the Warsaw Pact forces. It was in June that the Soviets finally matched the NATO Autumn Forge exercises with their own massive war game. It was the largest ever unilateral Soviet combat exercise with 60,000 Soviet troops spread over Hungary and Czechoslovakia with total mobilization in Czechoslovakia of regular forces, territorial forces, and civil defense forces. The Soviet railway troops, for the first time in three decades, conducted an exercise to test logistical capabilities while under air attack, and presumably under nuclear attack. To swell the ranks of the armed forces, draft deferments were halted, even for those working in defense manufacturing. In fact, drafts had been increased since late 1983, with men up to 35 being drafted without any regard for employment or family circumstances. Very clearly, this was the result of the urgency of a pre-war mindset. And so, the leadership, the intelligence apparatus, and the military-industrial complex proceeded as if war was inevitable. Too often, the story of this period is told in terms of the acute Soviet anxieties caused by the NATO exercises of 1983. But what seems most frightening to me now is watching a superpower adjust the national machinery in preparation for an all but inevitable attack. And it was, as I said at the start, the ghost of Barbarossa driving it all. From summer and even into the fall of 1984, that looming surprise attack was on the minds of everyone in the Soviet leadership. The Politburo required the Minister of Defense, the Chief of the General Staff, and other departmental leaders to be near their offices at all times, eliminating travel, either personal or official. First Deputy Minister of Defense Akramayev said publicly during this time that war was imminent and that the situation in Europe was like the weeks before the German invasion of 1941. But war didn't come. More importantly, more specifically, the compulsive collection of data in the service of proving that a war was imminent, didn't result in a preemptive Soviet attack, causing, ironically, war. But what happened? What happened to Operation Ryan and the very real war scare of 1984? In many ways, much more dangerous and real than the already dangerous year 1983. How is it, and why is it, that the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact partners began to unwind the very tightly wound spring of a clockwork war? 
one answer might be lucky circumstance. If 1985 had been another year like 1983 or 1984, I might not be here to tell this tale. It's unclear how long the Soviets could have operated under this constant tension. But it surely couldn't have been much longer before someone made a mistake. But that's not a very satisfying answer. The truth is, 1985 was different. And it was just in time. Inside of the Soviet intelligence apparatus, some of the best minds were beginning to doubt the constant promise of impending doom. We know this for at least two reasons, and primarily through the London-based double agent Oleg Gordievsky. First, the sense was that the directives coming from Moscow had become ritualistic and rote, with no particularly new or urgent targets defined. Week after week, it was the same directive issued with the same life-or-death urgency. Watch the same banks and post offices and slaughterhouses. Second, the emphasis for intelligence collection more generally had transitioned to the possibility of a U.S. technological breakthrough rather than a U.S. nuclear strike. That is to say that the Soviet Union had become far more concerned with a U.S. development that could upset the force balance over time than short-term measures to pre-position nuclear forces for an attack. Some of that had to do with the fact that nuclear forces like the medium-range Pershing IIs and the cruise missiles at Greenham Common were already in place by summer 1984, and they hadn't been used obviously. Soviet forces and intelligence had been on high alert for more than two years, and nothing had come of it. The overall re-examination of the readiness stance and related policies by the Politburo had a few other motivating factors as well. Moscow had been entirely incapable of matching the U.S. military buildup in Europe and around the world, largely due to the mounting economic problems that are still in the popular consciousness when thinking about those final years of the Soviet Union. The breadlines, for instance. There was only so much economic and production capacity that could be diverted to the military complex before the entire system began to bow and to break. In the United States, it was becoming increasingly likely nearly a certainty that Ronald Reagan would be re-elected. The path forward for the Soviet Union would have to take this much longer presidential administration into account, rather than assuming a cataclysmic and very sudden realignment of the world's situation through a surprise U.S. nuclear strike. And of course, as I mentioned before, there was the increasing likelihood of a U.S. technological breakthrough, particularly in the realm of space-based weaponry. As this reevaluation of the priorities and policies of the Soviet Union was going on, it was also pushed along by the changing demographic of the leadership. As Reagan complained, the Soviet leadership kept dying on him. Brezhnev and Dropov and Chernenko all dropped dead from complications of age 
stress, smoking, and vodka, with Chenenko leaving the scene in March 1985. One unnamed intelligence asset suggested that the biggest motivating factor for the easing of tensions after 1984 was the newly ascendant, younger generation. Gorbachev was hardly a spring chicken when he took power in 1985. But think about this in terms of the Second World War, in terms of the Barbarossa invasion. Brezhnev was born in 1906, Andropov in 1914, Chernenko in 1911, and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1931. An entirely new generation, but more importantly, Gorbachev wasn't an adult in the Second World War. He saw it, admittedly its many atrocities, through the eyes of a child. And it made a fundamental difference when it came to changing the worldview of the Politburo and attempting, valiantly, though unsuccessfully, to bring the Soviet Union into a new era. The later months of 1984 saw the final dissolution of the anxious leadership that had kept the Soviet military on high alert in preparation for that U.S. attack. The perennially hardline and anti-American chief of the general staff, Ogarkov, was actually fired by the Politburo in September 1984 and replaced by Akramayev, who, though I should point out was about the same age, and contrary to my point, was much more open to reasoned negotiations with the West, particularly with regard to arms control. Then in December, Dmitry Ustinov, who had been a major believer in the inevitability of the surprise attack scenario, fell ill and died at the age of 76. Arms control talks were resumed in January of 1985. Chernenko, the last Soviet leader of the old guard, grew sicker and sicker in the first months of 1985 and eventually died on the 10th of March, paving the way for Gorbachev and the revolution that was to come. Of course, the tensions of the war scare weren't resolved overnight, but the long-standing near-certainty in the surprise nuclear attack scenario among the leadership did give way to a cooler assessment through the first half of 1985. Gorbachev seemed committed to a new approach to the struggle between the superpowers. But nothing is ever easy, is it? Gorbachev's easing did not extend to the ranks of the Soviet military. In fact, the military seemed somehow permanently traumatized by the war scare and never shared Gorbachev's vision of an amicable peace with the West. Until 1987, Soviet ballistic missile submarines continued their forward deployments and strategic bombers patrolled the Arctic. And, in a move that could only have been a preparation for war, the Soviet rocket force's alternate command post was pushed even farther east, to Orenburg, well out of the range of the Pershing Twos. It is clear that after the deep analysis undertaken by the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board in 1990, the consensus was that the war scare was real, which may seem obvious to listeners of the Cold War vault by this point. 
But what that review also made clear was that the real height of the war scare, the most dangerous days, were when the epicenter for the danger had shifted from the United States and NATO's somewhat reckless disregard of international tensions in the winter of 1983 and into the hands, or minds, of the Soviet Union. The evidence for the German invasion of 1941 was all there to be seen. The date for the invasion was reported, but Stalin ignored it, and it was a miscalculation that unleashed disaster. It was a lesson the Soviets learned perhaps too well. I have struggled not to use the word paranoia unnecessarily in this series because it wasn't that at all. It was a heightened sense of awareness and anxiety brought on by very real historical factors and fairly perceived rhetoric and actions by the United States in the 1980s. Again, we know now, in hindsight, the United States was never planning to attack the Soviet Union preemptively. But the Soviet Union didn't know that. And so it acted on its perceptions of threat. I guess you would have to say it acted on its best judgment in the service of self-preservation. Actions that could have resulted very easily and many times over in its complete destruction. Thank you for listening to The Cold War Vault. This episode and this series was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. Please consider supporting the show on Patreon, where you can find all of the amazing declassified documents I use to put these shows together from archives all over the country and the world. You can follow The Vault on Facebook at Cold War Vault and Twitter at the same, but most importantly, like and review The Vault wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So remember, just because you would never think of going to war with your annoying neighbor doesn't mean they haven't been planning to go to war with you. Until next time.